as part of the Imagine series that you and I are studying right now, you and I need to envision reform. We need to envision reform in ourselves, in our relationships, and in our communities. That, that is our agenda for today. You'll see it inside your bulletin, your notes, societal reform. However, listen, we can't envision societal reform until we first understand societal decay. We first have to understand societal decay. A friend of mine in England, buddy of mine, recently wrote me, and he sent me a picture. That he said, Wayne, I think this captures the core of current societal decay as faced by Western societies. This was the picture he sent me. It's a young woman. She's a student uh, in England, a college student, and she is very, very angry that, according to some new laws, she now has to pay for her own college tuition. And she writes on her sign, I'm not going to take it anymore. My friend pointed out that that's incredibly funny because her anger is based on the fact she actually wants to take it. Her real problem is she now has to work for it. Uh, my friend went on and he said this, and I thought this was well said. He said, the core of societal decay these days is found in people who believe they are entitled to things on earth just because other people have things on this earth. He then referenced Bill Clinton's famous statement from his first inaugural address. Uh, William Jefferson Clinton said this, it is time to break the bad habit of expecting something for nothing from our government or for e from each other, close quote. Now, I responded to him that he, my friend Ann Clinton, may well be right. But I added, human beings have always struggled with this spirit of entitlement, at, at least since we got kicked out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3, not just other people, Every one of us. That's why God's law contains such very clear statements about stealing and coveting. It's something with which we all struggle. Now, I know, I know what you're thinking. In your favorite uh, Bill Clinton accent, you're, you're thinking, well, thank goodness our perfect little society here doesn't have to deal with societal decay. <laughs> I'm going to go play the saxophone, right? That's what you're thinking. Um, and, and I have to tell you, au contraire, I want to read to you a story that was sent to me by the very wonderful people at GameStop here in Frisco, Texas. Friends at GameStop uh, wrote me this. They said, Wayne, uh, this past November, a man ran into our GameStop store here in the mall. He grabbed a bunch of packaging off the shelves, all new game boxes, and then jetted out into the outside crowd in the mall. Our staff and customers just looked at each other, stunned at such a brazen act in the middle of the day. Then we sighed and shrugged because no actual products are kept in the boxes. As you know, all the games are actually locked up behind the counter. A few minutes after everything died down, the guy reappeared in the doorway. He threw down the ripped-up packaging he stole and cursed loudly. Then he yelled, there aren't any DVDs in these boxes, and he stomped away. <laughs> the reality is that we face, as many, many generations have, real societal decay, and it's not limited to London. It's right here in the healthy, well-run family-friendly communities that we have built here in North Texas. Now, it may not always be that graphic, but it is a clear and present danger to businesses, to families, to, to all of society. The group and the individual are threatened by societal decay, which is rooted, as it always has been, in selfishness and entitlement. That's why continual reform is necessary. But before we get to the reforms that are outlined in Scripture, let's spend a moment on something else, on societal change as well. Societal change does not de facto mean decay. Some change is bad, but much change is positive. Despite what grumpy old men will tell you, there is nothing inherently bad in change. However, even when it's good, change can be hard to take. For example, a few months ago, I shared with Thomas Campbell in our congregation that my system was in shock 
over societal change in our city that had just that had just become graphically clear to me. Here's, here's the story. Um, I was, it, it started when I was very, very blessed to be invited for a, a private tour of the Star in Frisco before it opened. Just a few of us with the mayor. And the mayor walked us out onto Coach Garrett's private balcony. It is really, it's really nice. It was still under construction then, but it's really, really cool. Little miniature football field out there where he can coach players. I mean, it's pretty awesome. We're standing there. And the mayor <clears throat> points across the street, and he casually mentions that the Wade Park Hotel, that it's going to be just down the tollway, that it's going to be 35 stories high. 35 stories. That's 350 feet. Anyway, I, I don't know if this hits you, but, but it did me. And suddenly, I was transported back a few years, not that many years, back to when I used to come with my sons and watch the guys who flew remote control airplanes on that exact same property. They had a little tiny asphalt landing strip that they would fly planes off of. In fact, a lot of those guys would ride their horses in Frisco, Texas, ride their horses past my house and down Rolliter and then, and then down Bishop Road, which was the only way to get there. There was no other road then. Now that same property is a tollway that turns into a parking lot every single morning, right? Every morning it is a parking lot. And I must have, I must have really looked shocked. I know this is no big deal to you, right? But to a kid who grew up with wheat fields all around my house, a creek right behind my house, to a, to a kid who grew up and moved here to get away from traffic and people, okay? To me, this was really shocking. And, and it must have looked pretty awful because one of my pastor buddies leaned over and he whispered in my ear, are you okay? It was John McKenzie, awesome pastor at, at Hope Fellowship. Actually, let me give you the real story. What John said to me, and I quote, was this. Are you okay? You don't look so good. Of course, you never look good, but you know what I mean. That's what he said in my ear. And my response was, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, because I was. Even in my shock, I knew God is at work. Even in my shock, I know the truth that growth can bring and will bring much that is good. And I also know John 17. You see, as I stood there and grieved over that old airplane field and the horseback rides, it was John 17 that kicked me in the 350-story backside, right? Open your Bible to John 17. You probably need a 35-story kick as well. Open your Bible, John 17's fourth book of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Go to chapter 17. This is in a section called the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is gathering with his disciples on that last night uh, before everything comes unglued, and chapter 13 through 17 is the upper room discourse. We're going to start at the end at chapter 17 and pick it up in verse 15. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he prays thusly. Jesus says, I'm not praying that you take them, by which he means his disciples. And by the way, don't think that was only limited to those 12, because he specifically says in that context, and all those who follow them. That's you. That's me. Okay. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Stop there. Now, considering that prayer of Jesus, his prayer for me, his prayer for you, I spent a little more time looking back. As I stood there on that balcony, I remembered more. And I remembered more about the blessings of engaging with a community instead of just running away from traffic and change. You see, when I first moved to Frisco, there was a lot of tension here over some school issues. 
Doesn't matter what they were. I'll just tell you the tension you feel today over school issues is nothing compared to what it was then. So I decided I wanted to be part of the solution, so I jumped in to help. I jumped in to help. I went and met with a guy named Justin Wakeland, who was a superintendent of schools. And Dr. Wakeland, he put me in charge. He said, you are now the unpaid marketing director for FISD. And he gave me an office that I went to whenever I had time in the old administration building. Administration was so small then, we had extra room in, in the old building. And it was a blessing. Then I served on a committee that somehow miraculously God used us to convince the voters of Frisco, who were only about 7,000 people at the time, convince them to, to do a bond issue and a long-term plan that would make lots of smaller high schools in Frisco so more kids could be involved in the years to come. And somehow, taxpayers were willing to do that even though it meant we were going to pay a lot more in taxes to pull that off. Now, ended up we didn't have to because so many of you moved here, the taxes went down. See, I told you gross not all bad. Um, and, and then our growing little town had a tiny little public library. I mean, it was it was tiny. A few of you are older. Remember, it was just, it couldn't do anything. So, so I, I wanted to help the library. So I jumped in and volunteered at the library, and I, I had a little badge. I was a volunteer at the Frisco Public Library. My favorite part was two days a week, I read to little kids who came from homes where they didn't have people to read to them, and we read great stories, all right? Then we planted this church, which has been a, an amazing blessing to this area. In fact, it was your church, it was this church that began a number of different things. Here's just a few of them. We began a homeschool group called Frisco His that has blessed hundreds and hundreds of families. We began a school called Legacy Christian Academy. Actually, the very first meeting was in my living room of Legacy Christian Academy. We began a group called Frisco Young Life that has seen hundreds of students come to Christ. Everyone on that original committee were members of Frisco Bible Church. While all that was going on, I was blessed to help launch the Frisco Christian Alliance. It's a group of pastors that agree on basic doctrine, and we meet every month. And I love those men. They are awesome. And together, those churches, number of things. Let me just give you one thing. I think maybe the most important thing we've done. Twice, we have defeated proposed laws that would have opened this community up to all-night bars and strip clubs amazingly, we have defeated those. And I thought back over all of that as I stood on, on Jason Garrett's balcony, and I was reminded of the positive results that can come if you will engage according to Jesus' prayer. Engage with a society instead of running away. Because like our surrounding cities, because of that engagement by all those people, Frisco has become a sought-after place to live. This is all you need to know. Here, you, in a, here it is in a nutshell. When my family moved to Frisco, Texas, there were more whorehouses than restaurants. And it wasn't even close, okay? Now, that seedy little community has become a place that always appears on every national ranking of the best places to raise kids. And most importantly, because people engaged according to Jesus' prayer, thousands have come to faith in Jesus. Thousands of people have become Christians through this church and through our brethren. Friends, here's the point. The answer to both societal decay and societal change is deeper engagement of Christians who envision continual societal reform. This becomes especially evident when you unpack the conversation that leads up to that John 17 prayer. Okay, so flip back to the start of the upper room discourse. Would you go back to John 13, go back to the beginning. Jesus is gathering that last session with his disciples, and he says this. We're going to work our way through it just piece by piece. Let's start in verse 34, chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus says, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also must love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. As we say on the right side of our notes, remember to love the brethren. This is where it all starts. 
Please notice, Jesus doesn't say, people will know you're his followers if you feed the poor. He doesn't say, you'll know, the people will know you're a Jesus follower if you elect wise governments or if you give money to spread the gospel. Those are, fine. Those are wonderful things, in fact. But they do not resonate with the world's consciousness as coming from Jesus. One thing, one thing only tips everybody off out there that you are a follower of Jesus when you love his people. I know it's hard. Church people are weird, okay? We're like minions. We're kind of goofy. We're prone to distraction. Maybe that's why Jesus calls us his sheep, because sheep is dumb, right? But if you can let God empower you to really love us goofy sheep, then you're fulfilling Jesus' command, right? And the world will know you're a Jesus freak. They'll probably know you're a Jesus freak because nobody else could love us. (laughs) And this is primary. It's primary not just in the flow of the upper room teaching by Jesus. It's also primary in the logic of societal reform. Think, think. If you Christians can't even love your own, what could you possibly have to offer anyone else? You can't get to the reforming societal engagement of chapter 17 without first loving the brethren in chapter 13. Everything starts with loving the brethren. Amen? All right. Now, the next section of the upper room discourse, what we call chapter 14, is greatly about peace. All right, go to verse 1 of chapter 14. Your heart must not be troubled, said Jesus. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, slide down to the continuation of the thought, the end of the thought in verse 27. Great stuff there we're going to go over, but, but we can study that some other time. Go down to verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. Be at peace. It is the legacy of Jesus to his congregation. Of course, just saying it doesn't make it so. At least it doesn't for me. I don't know about you, but to move from stress and fear and troubled thinking, I have to do more than just wave my magic peace wand, right? There's a really big clue about a process that does work in your text. Look, it's it's there, the contrast between Jesus and the world. See how he highlights that? We know from other texts that Jesus' kingdom is not currently of this world. Therefore, he gives differently. His peace is different. He's not a contract breaker. He doesn't change. He leaves his peace permanently. Ergo, if I want to experience real peace, I must turn to Jesus. I cannot, I will not find peace in this world. You do know that most people actually think peace is something to find in this world. They do. This is how people think. Psalm 17 summarizes it brilliantly. Look, middle of a prayer, just for this one time, just don't worry about the context, just look at this. By your sword, deliver my life from the wicked, from mortals. By your hand, O Lord, and here's the key thought, from mortals whose portion in life is this world. Whose portion in life is this world. Mortals find their portion in life in this fading world. By contrast, the immortal Jesus offers real peace. Finding peace in Christ, instead of trying to find our portion in this world, requires that we renounce and grieve this world, especially, think this through, especially the good things of this earth, right? So go back to me. I'm standing on Coach Garrett's balcony. I'm thinking of remote-controlled airplanes being replaced by a 35-story hotel. What was my real problem? I needed to grieve. I had to recognize that it was not a hotel that was stealing my peace and joy in my community. It was my own memory. Because those were pleasant memories, I had unwittingly slipped into finding my portion in this world. Somebody comes along and builds over my memories, what happens? I lose my peace, right? 
To move into Jesus' peace that passes understanding and lasts forever, I had to first renounce the way I had found my portion on this earth. Don't misunderstand. I, I didn't have to denigrate the memories. I didn't have to lie and call them bad. They weren't evil. They were very, very good memories. But they are not, they cannot be the source of my peace. I can be excited about serving Jesus in every season, through every change, because he alone gives me peace that is not limited by this world. All God's people said, look, this is the setup of the upper room discourse. This is the background required for Jesus' people to become agents of societal change sent out into the world. You've got to love the sheep, and you've got to find your peace in Jesus alone. Then we're prepared for the next great statement in Jesus' message. Next great statement is, remember, you're sent to make a lasting difference. You are sent out to make a lasting difference. Chapter 15, uh, go there and go to verse 16. Chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. You see, there's a, there's a terrible flaw that can come up if we stop reading before John 15. We can become reclusive hermits who refuse to get out into the world, right? It is great. It is vitally important that we, that we love the brethren. That's excellent. It is great and vitally important that we find our peace only in Jesus. Yes, yes, and amen. But that doesn't mean, it can't mean that we withdraw from society. That's why Jesus specifically says here, you should go out. The whole point of our choosing is to go out and produce fruit. There's a balance here with which modern Christians really, really seem to struggle. Modern Christians tend to fall into one of two camps, okay? We see a lot of what I call Christians in hiding. Christians in hiding see every potential opportunity, every opportunity to go out and bear fruit is seen as an existential threat, all right? Here's Christians in hiding. All right, you ask a Christian in hiding, hey, are you going to the high school football game? No way, there'll be lost people there, all right? You say, hey, are you going to join that civic service committee? Absolutely not. That would mean working with atheists. I get enough of that at the office, all right? Christians in hiding, you say, hey, will you help us out by coaching this kid's sports team? Heavens no, many of those children aren't read to at home, right? That's what you get. On the opposite extreme, and equally damaging, are Christians who don't find their peace in Jesus. I call these chameleon Christians, all right? They go out into the world, they do engage the world, but they, they have no discernible difference from the worldlings all around them. They're just like the world. You ask them, you ask them, say, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Getting drunk with the girls? It's what you do in America, this is life. Really? These are Christians. I've, I've been told that many, many, many times. Um, you talk to a young man. You say, hey, why are you looking at pornography? You walk into a locker room like I used to. Why are you looking at pornography? All the guys do it. This is, this is life. You, you, you say to one of these chameleon Christians, hey, will you, in your environment, will you lovingly, lovingly speak God's truth about sexual sin? And they say, oh, no way. I mean, that's why the Bible's unpopular. We have to change the Bible to fit the times, right? That's what you're told. You and I are called and chosen and sent out by Jesus. We're sent out to bear fruit. There's no fruit if we're just like everybody else, ignoring the higher calling of Jesus' word and his peace. And there's no fruit if we just stay hunkered back behind our barricades. Years ago, I ended up in a lovely one-on-one -on -one conversation with this guy, with John R.W. Stott. And we discussed this topic for a while, and, and the great theologian said something very profound to me. He said, he said, Wayne, the issue is whether Scripture will inform society or society will inform Scripture. Close quote. Go out. 
as Jesus sanctified followers and informed society according to Scripture. And as you go out, remember, remember this, Jesus' next point, opposition is normal. Very next thought in the great conversation, uh, go to verse 19. You're in chapter 15, go down to verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you? A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Idea continues. Go down to chapter 16, read verses 1 and 2. I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. Opposition to Christ's followers is real. Jesus promises as much, but despite his clear statement, opposition, opposition sometimes leads to strange responses from Christians. Um, I was discussing this with Jonathan Satchel of our pulpit team, and he reminded me of an awesome book that I hadn't read in years, great historical action-adventure story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. By the way, Arthur Conan Doyle was convinced in his diary, he was convinced that his adventure stories were really excellent and would live forever, and his silly little Sherlock Holmes stories that sold well would, would fade away into nothing. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Uh, the White Company is the name of the book of which Jonathan reminded me. Great book. The main character in the story is a man who has been raised in an abbey for, for his whole young life, and at 20 years old, he goes out into the world for the first time. He gets caught up in, in this fascinating group of people that are a bunch of, of archers who are fighting for the legendary Black Prince of Wales. Uh, that, that's who they fight for. Along the way, he meets a maiden, as one does in these kinds of stories. Maud is the rather outspoken daughter of a knight. Here's the deal. Jonathan reminded me, there's a scene where the hero, he shares with Maud that, that he hides his Christianity. He hides his Christianity because of all the opposition he keeps finding in a very rough and tumble world. Here's what Maud says to him in response. This, this is brilliant. Maud says, my father is the king's man, and when he rides into the press of fight, he's not thinking ever of saving his own poor body. He wrecks little enough if he leave it on the field. Why then should you, who are soldiers of the Spirit, be ever moping and hiding in a cell or in a cave with minds full of your own concerns, while the world, which you should be mending, is going on its way and neither sees nor hears you? Were ye all as thoughtless of your own souls as the soldier is of his body, ye would be of more avail to the souls of others. After a little more dialogue, she concludes with this. She says, I have asked myself if the best which can be done with virtue is to shut it within high walls as though it were some savage creature. If the good will lock themselves up and if the wicked will still wander free, then alas for the world. Close quote. Isn't Maud awesome? By the way, they get married in the end. Sorry, read the book, but it's really, it's really good. She understands. She understands that opposition is normal. We mustn't stop envisioning and laboring for societal reform just because people object. My partner Jonathan had this great summary. Look what Jonathan wrote me. He said, Maud's soldier analogy is a deeply biblical one, and it puts our duty to Christ in perspective. As scary as it is to interact with those in the world who are subconsciously or actively against our faith, we are repeatedly reminded in Scripture that once we're saved, we become soldiers in a mighty fight. Soldiers don't stay in the armory and claim that by continually polishing their armor and sharpening their swords, they are contributing to the fight. What's the use of a sharp sword that has never seen battle? If we approach our duty in the company of God in this manner, then alas for the world indeed. Close quote. Instead of fearing and retreating when we face opposition, we should remember what Jesus talks about next, that the Holy Spirit of God is at work. 
Look, look uh, John chapter 16, that's where you're at. Go down to verse 8, uh, verse 8 through 11. When he comes, meaning the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, you'll no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. What does God, the Holy Spirit, accomplish in our societies? He convicts. He convicts about sin, righteousness, and judgment. So think that through. You, my friend, if you're a believer in Christ, you are a partner with the Holy Spirit, but you're not him. You serve by the Spirit's leadership, but he's in charge. He convicts the world, though he may use you in that, he frankly doesn't need your help. Please keep this dichotomy in mind. Holy Spirit is God. He is the leader. He convicts the world. He sets the standard. You are a human. You're a follower. You serve in the world, but you just point to his standard. This comparison is really important because when we face the inevitable opposition that we will always face to societal reform, Christians who don't retreat into abbeys, and I hope you don't, Christians who don't retreat into abbeys have a, a weird tendency. They have a tendency to go a little over the top. They have a tendency to become a little, a little big in the situation. Yelling at people achieves nothing. Let God yell at them. He's good at it, okay? You just point to the standard and tell people they got to deal with him. Because, folks, when we jump in the way, and I've, I've done so, and you probably have too, when we jump in the way, sadly, they can't see God anymore. Societal decay and societal change must be managed by continual reform, reform that is part of our very purpose on this earth. Speaking of this earth, Jesus, one last idea tucked into the upper room discourse. Remember, remember, this isn't our ultimate home. Uh, you're in chapter 16. Go to verses 19 and 20. 19 and 20. Jesus knew they wanted to question him. So he said to them, are you asking one another about what I said? A little while you'll not see me. Again, a little while you will see me. I assure you, you will weep and wail, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Jesus is referencing a promise that he made earlier in the discussion. John chapter 14, verse 3. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus says, this life isn't the end. This culture isn't your home. I'm preparing a new heavens and new earth. I have a new place for you. So surely you're thinking in your most timid voice, doesn't that mean that I should just withdraw more? Right? If this isn't my home, shouldn't I just hide away more? Good question. The answer is not at all. The same Jesus who comforted you with promises about our real home is the same Lord who tells us to go out on this earth here and now. Even if our time... Even if our time here is short, don't you think we ought to use it well? So picture it like this. Suppose a young Christian woman is, is leaving her apartment. She's getting married. She's going to go live with her wealthy husband in their beautiful new home, okay? What should she do as she's leaving the old apartment? Should she just trash it? Should she just leave it messy? Yes or no? Should she leave the apartment a mess? Yes or no? No. Why not? It can't be the deposit. I told you her husband's wealthy, Right? I ain't afford to lose the deposit. Why should she clean the apartment? Because it's moral. It's the right thing to do. Almighty God tells us to do to others as we would have them do to us. We don't make messes for other people unless we're two, and then we learn and grow out of that. We, we, we don't do that. Same thing when you leave a job. 
A lot of you have left jobs. It doesn't matter how horrible that workplace was. You have learned you don't burn bridges. You, don't, you, you leave praising God for the transition time, and you commit to use it for good. It is the only way to be. Just because you and I are guaranteed a perfect home elsewhere doesn't mean we shouldn't care about all the other people who are trapped in this cesspool. How selfish. That's why the Bible gives us two mandates. There, there, there are two commands in the Bible that make all the difference for those people who are trapped in this horrible bad lease, in this bad job that is earth, this side of, the, of heaven. First mandate. We are told to fill the earth and subdue it. This repeated statement in Genesis is fleshed out throughout the Scriptures. Humans are supposed to care for life on this planet. Humans are intended to be, by God, a force for good. And by the way, this command is repeated after sin enters into the picture. So even though the image of God is defaced, it is not erased, and we are still supposed to be a force for good. We're to do good on this earth, even though one day it's going to all be remade. Second mandate, we are to share the good news of salvation with Jesus with all the world. We are to invite every other person we can to join Jesus Forever family in the awesome new home that he is preparing for us. Remembering that this is not our home actually spurs on our efforts in these two mandates. It does not make us retreat at all. Therefore, with that in mind, go back now. There you got all the background, okay? Now go back to Jesus' great prayer in John 17. All right, go to verse 15 of John 17. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is true. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Loving the brethren, finding peace only in Jesus, making a lasting difference for which Jesus appointed you, remembering that opposition is normal, that the Holy Spirit is at work, leave this home well. All God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, now, let me tell you why I'm addressing all this today. I believe that the next three years, I won't bore you with all the reasons why, I think the next three years are critical for North Texas. In fact, looking back on the time I've been around, I think the next three years are going to prove as important as the period from 1993 to 1995 was for the city of Frisco. You see, during that era, 93 to 95, God's people, and they were God's people, drew up plans for a great number of things that have proven to be an amazing blessing to many, many, many thousands of people. Let me just walk you through a couple of them. It was in 1993 that a Christian, a godly man named Bob Warren, who was the mayor of Frisco, decided that he could and felt God wanted him to bring a mall to Frisco, Texas to become an economic powerhouse to to jumpstart and supercharge this struggling economy. All the experts told us it could not be done. I was on the committee with Bob, and I read articles in in the Dallas Business Journal laughing at us until we did it, until God did it, and we got to be a part. During those three years, we noticed there were a number of families in our community that were beginning to hurt. The community was growing. And, and the old safety social systems that had worked before weren't working as well in our new town, our new bigger town. So a bunch of Christians got together, and they formed something that eventually became known as Frisco Family Service. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's fed thousands of people. So many wonderful Christians were heavily involved in all these efforts during those years, and I was honored to learn from them. I was honored to serve with them. Pe- people like, like Kip Bledsoe and, and George Purefoy and Ron Patterson, Isabel Sim and, and uh, Pat and Catherine Fowler, Catherine who listens to all the difference every week, every day. Hi, hi Catherine. Uh, Gary and Angel Hadley, all these marvelous people and many, many more whom I'm 
forgetting to mention, most importantly, during that three-year period, 93 to 95, the number of churches in Frisco doubled as new church plants were started. That would not have happened so effectively if many people didn't sacrifice to make that happen. It was also greatly assisted by a city government and a school district that were very church-friendly. Now, during those years of the first Clinton administration, they were, they were long ago, that Clinton administration, but I am convinced that during those years, we saw something that is very similar to what we see today. We are at a similar change point today. And if you and I will engage with societal reform today, we can fulfill Jesus' calling, which is to make this place better and better and better all the time. So look in your bulletin. You've got a response card. I want you to take it out right now. Everybody grabbed it. Inside your bulletin, there's a response card. As part of our focus of reform, envisioning reform in our lives, in our society, in our church, I encourage you to, take, to make one of these commitments that's on your card. You may come up with many more and better applications. I'm going to share with you the four that, that struck me as most important. Number one, you'll see on there, volunteer in a government position in your city. There are scores of volunteer positions you can take in government. There are boards that are not full in Little Elm and Prosper and Argyle and Frisco and Salina and McKinney and, and Plano and all the other towns that I'm forgetting. Your city needs you. You can get to work. Your schools, I promise you, will put you to work. Meals on Wheels, the, the Frisco Library, Frisco Family Services, other government-supported works can use you. If, if that seems to fit your heart, then, then, then get out there and get at it. Get out there and start serving. Do this. Just circle that little, little bullet point so you'll know you did that. Write that down with your name on the commitment card. Tear it off and put it in the offering plate so I can pray for you. And that way I'll keep a list and I'll pray for you over the next three years. Second way that you can impact society. Become a supporter. You see on there, become a supporter of all the difference, our, all the difference ministries. This is exactly what our radio and broadcast ministries do, what our books do. They, they impact the world beyond these walls. There's a whole lot of people that give money to your ministry, all the difference. Do you know why? They do it because they want to change the way the world thinks. They want to impact people in a way that really does change people and make a difference. If that appeals to you, indicate that on the card, and we will praise God for you. Third, commit to joining one of this church's outreach ministries, okay? We've got four regular monthly outreach ministries. I'm suggesting that you volunteer 12 times. That's four times a year over the next three years. That you volunteer four times a year over the next three years at one of these ministries. Grace Bridge is a ministry in, in Salina that we support. And we work with them at least once a month, often more, and they feed the hungry in Collin County. Prairie Estates is a nursing home where we go every single month, and it is awesome as we encourage the people who are in that nursing home, actually, to put it more honestly, as they encourage us. Uh, Laundry Love is a, is a new ministry, new ministry of our church. It is our monthly outreach at the Frisco Laundromat. Our volunteers go to the Frisco Laundromat one Friday night a month, and they, and they pay for all the laundry costs for everybody that's there. And while those people are happy and thankful and not having to pay for their laundry, they engage them in conversations about what really matter. Think, okay? If you can't talk to somebody about the things that really matter, about sin and about Jesus and about cleansing in him and about trusting him, if you can't do that when you're washing, something's really wrong with you, okay? It's really a perfect setup, all right? Fourth one that you'll see on there is life talk. Nearly every month, we host a shower of blessing. Shower of blessing is where a very brave woman who has decided to spare the life of her unborn child, she comes into this church, and, and a lot of you give her, who, who has nothing, 
give her all the stuff she needs to enjoy raising that child and especially to raise that child in a godly community. It's awesome. Four times a year over this critical three-year period, you join these efforts. Every one of these is going to cost you time. Some of them will cost you money. All of them will bless your socks off. We have lots of other annual outreach efforts that are wonderful and very important. Things like VBS and, and Clothe a Child and Operation Christmas Child. But these are our every month outreach ministries. All right, you're going to see a fourth recommendation. Final recommendation. Join, brand new. We're just starting this today. We're calling it Active Faith Fellowship. AJ Rinaldi just came up with that wonderful name. It's a low-key mentoring program. You see, let me give you a little background. Here's where it comes from. One of the problems that we see continually these days is that people in younger generations are having a very hard time integrating their faith with their work life. It's really hard. Uh, A.J. Rinaldi, our pastor, and I were just at a summit with people from all over the world. It was a fascinating gathering of people, and we, we talked about this in all kinds of different environments, schools, works, churches. It, it, just, it was amazing how people are struggling, and particularly younger generations, struggling with living out who they are as an integrated whole. So what we're doing is this. We're asking those of you whom God puts this on your heart, those of you who were born prior to 1982 to serve in this ministry as senior fellows. And if you were born after 1981, we'd like you to consider becoming an associate fellow in this. It's not a great deal of commitment. We just ask the senior to take on an associate. We'll arrange this for one year, okay? Some guy with a guy, some girl with a girl for one year. All you're doing as a senior fellow is you are agreeing to answer their questions, and they have lots of questions. Now, here's the only tip-off. They only talk through Twitter and text, okay? Just got to warn you, all right? So if you're a complete Luddite, you may not want to do this, but that, that's how they communicate. You also agree that when you can, as you can, you take your associate fellow to work. When they have time once in a while, you take them to important meetings so they can see how business gets done. You help them navigate the very difficult world these days of school and or business. Our pastor, A.J. Rinaldi, is going to oversee this program. If you want to join as either a senior fellow or an associate fellow, just indicate that on your card, and we'll, we'll set it up, and we'll see what develops. If everything goes the way I think it will, th these fellows are going to help reform society. I'm really convinced these intergenerational relationships will do some very important things. Here's what I think they will do. I think this will model how life is integrated, especially faith and work, which is really, really important. Secondly, I think it will model how to work, how to, how to work as a biblical Christian. Thirdly, I think the associate fellows will, I, I really think they're going to be empowered to discern what kind of work, what kind of service fits them best at this season. And everybody wants help with that, don't you? And fourthly, maybe most importantly, we're going to help these younger people discern how God intends to use them, use them to positively reform and change this world. And that is our goal, right? That's the goal of John 17, that all these activities are used so that God will change the world through each of us. Amen? Pray with me about that. Let's pray to that end. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that you will use us to change the world, that we really will be what you make us, a light on a hill. Father, I ask this, knowing that we are not capable, but you are. And I ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.